0: Thank you. Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two segments today, we'll talk with David Adler, the Progressive International, about the IMF, and with the journalist Sudeep Bhattacharya about Asian Americans. The International Monetary Fund was founded, along with the World Bank, in 1945 to govern the post-war international economic order. Collectively known as the Bretton Woods Institutions, named after the New Hampshire town that was the site of their founding conference, their division of labor was fairly simple. The fund would offer assistance to countries facing short-term problems in meeting their international obligations, and the bank would provide long-term finance, first to European countries rebuilding after the war, and then to poorer countries as they were decolonized. All this, of course, would occur under the watchful imperial eye of the United States. The institutions' roles grew enormously during the debt crisis of the 1980s as they became the economic masters of scores of poor countries. They faded from view somewhat as that crisis receded, but they came back with the Euro crisis of a decade ago, and now with the economic fallout of the COVID pandemic. Here to tell us more about what the IMF is up to, dispensing money with lots of strings attached while uttering high-minded invocations of international solidarity, is David Adler, a political economist and general coordinator of the Progressive International, which was founded in May 2020 to unite, organize, and mobilize progressive forces around the world, as they say. David Adler. So the IMF and World Bank uh, held their um, annual spring meetings. Their big meetings are in the fall, but they have a a less big meeting in the spring. And uh, they certainly had a lot on their plate this time. War, inflation, impending debt crisis, rising interest rates. After um, all those years of the Great Moderation, (laughs) we we, we left that way behind. So um, there are some similarities here to uh, the late 70s, early 80s, the onset of that debt crisis. Rising interest rates after a period of low rates, a turn towards controlling inflation in the rich countries. World Bank says a dozen countries could face debt crises this year. So how bad is it? Why? And what exactly are they doing about it?
1: Yeah, it's helpful to place these spring meetings uh, in the context that you led with about this spate of debt crises that now hangs over the global south, very similar in nature to what we saw in 1979 with that uh, the Volcker shock led by our own Fed manager Paul Volcker, where raised interest rates in the United States led to a lost decade Across many parts of the global south, particularly in, in Latin America, and it's really in Latin America that we can see many of those dynamics reemerging now. So the the, the mandate coming into these uh, spring meetings was really strong, and uh, I'm going to surprise few of your listeners when I when I say that the results were meager uh, and certainly not up to the task at hand in terms of responding to those debt crises. Uh, we can speak about the international monetary system and the role of uh, rate hikes in rich countries. Uh, we can also speak about the, the whether or not raising interest rates in those rich countries really is exactly the perfect handbrake on inflation that many of our monetary classical monetary economists uh, think it is. But I think regardless, we have to situate that monetary context in a broader economic context in which we're seeing supply chains seize a struggle for commodities to circulate around the global economy, which is, of course, the underlying structural condition of that inflation problem. We're seeing food prices soar, which not only comes out of that supply chain problem, but is deeply interlinked with the war in Ukraine. And, of course, we're seeing those same global North countries basically give up on the project of global vaccination, even though uh, a fraction of the population in places like sub-Saharan Africa and indeed many parts of Latin America uh, have received full full doses of vaccination against COVID-19.
0: Before the invasion of Ukraine, uh, things looked a little dicey. Inflation was rising, especially the price of basic things that are very important to people in poorer countries like fuel and uh, food. Um, but uh, then, of course, the, uh, uh, the invasion of Ukraine added to that. So could you, could you sort out what was the pre-existing condition and how did the Ukrainian crisis ex- exacerbate it?
1: Yeah, so the Ukraine crisis has exacerbated two problems at the same time. One is, of course, uh, Ukraine's own production of wheat and agriculture, that is an important kind of breadbasket for parts of Europe and parts of the world. Uh, and the sanctions against Russia, which are another kind of vector of instability in the global economy, given that huge parts of the world depend on imports from Russia, particularly Fuel and of course that, like we said before, is all happening in a context in which uh, the instability kicked off by the poly crisis of COVID nineteen was already kind of wreaking havoc in our ports and our supply chains, and most famously in the Suez Canal. Do you think this is is closely related? And I'm sure we'll we'll talk a bit about the kind of geopolitics uh, of this economic situation. But, you know, you've you've got a a really uncomfortable situation where many countries were, as you said before, already under tremendous economic strain, uh, who are reliant on imports from Russia for various things, and then are being kind of called on to participate. In this war uh, called on to enter into sanctions against Russia, uh, and many are kind of throwing up their hands, not only because they believe sanctions to be you know, kind of illegitimate tool of uh, economic warfare, but more importantly because they don't have a kind of structural privilege to for their populations to endure uh, another layer of crisis added on top of so much instability and impoverishment that came along with the COVID-19 pandemic and its aftermath.
0: I was reading this uh, World Bank blog a little while ago, and uh, it had an unusually poetic line from an unexpected source. For too long, the world has taken a tragically languorous approach to resolving debt crises and developing economies. How long has this debt crisis been brewing? You know, or is it just recent events in the last few months that have really pitched it into uh, the verge of crisis? It's
1: easy to forget just how wild
0: and uh,
1: kind of roaring that moment was, these uh, historically low interest rates and the ways in which the the remaining Bretton Woods institutions kind of contributed to that. So uh, in the sense that, you know, governments could now borrow, borrow, borrow. Of course, uh, in the G7, the the core of the global north, we saw these things like a, a Cornwall consensus that was supposedly replacing a Washington consensus that was much more about fiscal consolidation, austerity, and private sector investment as a replacement for public sector investment, right? But instead we saw, okay, now governments can spend, governments can protect, globalization and its rules are going to be rewritten. And there was a spate of borrowing, and it's always remarkable to look at, how those trends mirror past trends and how little we seem to have learned from past waves of sovereign debt crisis at the global level. But two trends, I think, go hand in hand here, and I can get into kind of the role of the IMF in this. One is really rapidly rapidly rising levels of public debt around the world, particularly in the global south, in the context of a COVID-19 pandemic where you know, all these governments were spending, spending, spending in order to protect their populations and uh, prepare a public health response to the pandemic, and then a really rapidly rising uh, share of that public debt that's been issued in variable rates which of course, as I said before, is related to that sense of <laughs> a highly myopic sense that that roaring uh, expansionary period in which the rule book of neoliberalism was thrown to the trash can was going to be replaced by you know a new period in which governments could, could could spend and which central banks were the great protagonists of history. And so all this variable debt now makes them incredibly vulnerable to the rate hikes, even minor rate hikes in the global north. Uh, and I think that really is the equation, the formula, Uh, through which we can make sense of this historic debt crisis that's now sweeping through the global south.
0: Well, I first started writing about economics and politics back in the late 80s. You know, the the Latin American debt crisis was big news. It was very salient, front page news, even in the the mainstream press, not just the business press. And then in those days, the IMF was like the bad cop uh, running around uh, imposing austerity and punishing countries for not uh, following the neoliberal playbook. Somewhere along the line, it seemed to reinvent itself as a much crunchier And soft organization that cares about inequality and talked about, you know, as you mentioned, they're telling countries to spend, spend, spend uh, in the COVID crisis. Are they back to being the bad cop again? Or uh, how is the IMF acting in this?
1: I would describe the transformation of the IMF as not so much the underlying mandate or the behavior of the fund, but rather the intensification of a kind of cognitive dissonance between, for example, its research departments who are unearthing findings from around the world that, for example, austerity doesn't work, uh, that structural adjustments is not a guarantor of uh, financial stability or economic strength, but quite the opposite in many, many cases. And other parts of the fund that are really dominated by, let's say, more right-wing interests and more geopolitically motivated, let's not forget that The IMF is not a neutral arbiter in global monetary affairs, very much driven by perceptions of U.S. interests, which is, of course, the largest member and the only effective veto wielder at the fund. And so, you know, this piece that I I wrote wrote for The Guardian, which is a bit hard line uh, in a sense of just trying to get some clarity on, you know, is the fund... Uh, the good guy, as you put it, Doug, but more more importantly, you know, is the fund delivering on its own mandate? And you know, the fund says we are here to facilitate monetary cooperation towards greater financial stability, towards creating strong economies and reducing global poverty. Uh, and as Njerajeva, the, the fund's managing director, you know, has added to that mandate, you know, we're here to deliver international solidarity. That's how she refers to it now, a kind of new spirit of solidarity. If you look around the world, we're seeing the betrayal of that mandate uh, across the board. And we can kind of walk through each of those pieces now. But just one stat to kind of kick us off there, because I think it's relevant to the question of has that Washington consensus transformed into a Cornwall consensus? To what extent is structural adjustment as the kind of paradigm of IMF lending really over? Um, You mentioned that. Great quote from Eva from April 2020, where she said, I, you know, I know it's very unusual for the IMF, but you know, I'm just going to come out and say, you know, please spend, spend as much as you can and spend a little bit more, she said, as the pandemic was kicking off and governments were looking to the IMF for support. Um, you know, and, and as I point out in the piece, it's it's it was a bit too unusual to be true. There's an amazing report out from Oxfam that looks at the 85 countries that received pandemic support from the IMF in that period of the heightened pandemic in 2020. Of those 85, 73 of them have already been forced to undertake austerity measures in the name of fiscal consolidation. Wages cut in Tunisia, welfare retrenchment in El Salvador, energy subsidies limited in Egypt, healthcare workers uh, trimmed in Ecuador, famously, uh, you know, leading to dead bodies up on, on the streets of Guayaquil. The record here of the IMF moving away from the broken consensus uh, towards kind of a new paradigm of social protection is just kind of belied by the actual statistics and, and the record of behavior across the fund's global lending activity.
0: Well, I remember back during the Euro crisis, they had that famous mea culpa where they said, whoops, austerity doesn't really work. Uh, sorry, they seem to have forgotten that lesson.
1: What's interesting about looking at the lessons from the euro crisis uh, is that, and I think this goes to a much deeper point about the fund's behavior and its, and its broken mandate, is you know, the fund doesn't really learn its lessons. And, and that shouldn't come as a surprise to us because there is no authority anywhere in the world, whether it's the Supreme Court of the United States and its largest member or the International Criminal Court or the International Criminal Court of Justice, there's no authority that can hold the IMF accountable for its wrongdoings. And so the result is that you have a high degree of impunity and kind of of, uh, you know, the IMF kind of shrugs its shoulders at its behavior around the world. And the best example
0: well, you know, along those lines, uh, I used to go to these meetings, uh, mostly the fall meetings, but I went to a couple of spring meetings, too. I stopped going because um, they were just empty rituals and I didn't get invited to the good parties. But um, at one of the press lunches, I sat next to the IMF's top lawyer and I was talking to him about oh, how we worked. I asked how their work meshed with international laws, uh, various national laws, U.N. regulations, you know, so on. He said, oh, no, none of that. We make our own law. It's an amazing, it's an amazing thing, and, and you know that
1: kind of informal dig that I'm sure he was he was smirking while he said it is reflected in the highest levels of the IMF's communication. So you had the uh, Juan Pablo uh who was independent expert at the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights of the UN, who was basically. You know, making a strong case at the highest levels of our multilateral system that the IMF is absolutely not outside the scope of international law. It's an international institution. The UN Charter absolutely applies. Of course, we're you know up in arms now in the face of Putin's aggression in, in Ukraine to defend international law. But the IMF really backed him in in stunning terms on the bottom of its uh, second page of this letter that I'm happy to share with you. Where it just says, you know, the IMF has not accepted Declaration on Human Rights as the motivating principle of our operations. We just don't respect human rights. And that's totally up to us to decide. So the best example to kind of illustrate that record of impunity beyond the Greek one that you mentioned is is Argentina. And I think it's really important because Argentina is still in the throes of this crisis, not only economic crisis, but the political crisis that was kicked off uh, in the course of this loan. And in 2018, the IMF pushed really quickly the, the largest loan in its history. Under President Mauricio Macri, that's $51.7 billion. And that was against warnings from its own staff who were like, we've done no backup planning, very little conditionality. Like we've done no analysis of where this money is going. And you know, of course, it was done again under that under the, the banner of that same mandate: stability, strength, solidarity. But it just had the exact opposite effects, right? It was used to kind of pay off international creditors, so enrich the richest people uh, in Argentina and abroad. It uh, you know sparked a huge wave of capital flight. Uh, employment fell drastically. Inflation rose. It basically destabilized the economy, destabilized society, and massively enriched um, Argentina's creditor class. Betraying the IMF's own bylaws, right? So this is a this is a loan that uh, really some of the most effective experts of international law just say this is a violation of ultra vires, right? So this this debt is illegitimate and it just shouldn't exist, right? Because now MACRI has left and there's lots of whispers Doug I don't want to be speculative but it's alleged you know that this was really a play by the Trump administration and its people in power at the highest levels of the IMF to try to support Macri their guy in Argentina to you know keep him in power as he was preparing for another run uh, I don't think you have to be a conspiracy theorist to see how, again, the fund often plays to, to play its US interests in that way. So, you know, Martin Guzman, the current Minister of the Economy, now under President Alberto Fernandez, has written a scathing sk- letter to Georgieva just recently, last month in March, just being like, frankly, none of the objectives of the program were achieved, right? And, and there needs to be some contrition by the fund uh, and some recuperation of. Argentina's economic sovereignty and some recognition of the violation there in order to repair the wound. So I think it's just lying there. And and certainly there was no progress made at the spring meetings and towards uh, kind of reconciliation or even recognition of what's happened in Argentina while the economy continues to suffer tremendously as a result of this hasty, illegal and illegitimate loan.
0: I'm speaking with David Adler, the Progressive International. It's funny you mentioned Argentina. I mean, it's, Argentina has been a prime example of this whole process for like over a century. It goes in and out of debt crisis, deflation, inflation, one crisis after another in a long trajectory of economic decline. And uh, nothing ever really changes. They just apply the same formula over and over again and uh, Argentina suffers. Yeah. Well,
1: I think, you know, Argentina suffers is, is also it's helpful to dissect a little bit about the, like I said, the kind of distributional consequence of this lending, right? Someone's getting rich always. And, um, uh, and in, in this case, when we look at the scale of capital, flight, I mean, if you look at the research on IMF lending uh, about the effects of IMF austerity, which is that, yeah, it does make the 90% bottom 90% poorer, but it also leaves the top 10% of earners economically richer. And that doesn't mean that, you know, more public spending would have the reverse effect. All boats, in some circumstances, can indeed rise together if there's investment really at the bottom uh, of the distributional spectrum uh, to try to kind of you know invest in infrastructure, invest in uh, education, these kinds of things. But the record of IMF austerity is precisely the kind of economic polarization, particularly through uh, the vector of capital mobility, which allows you know uh, rich money to escape the country, land in, in in tax havens, or allows them to you know get their money out of the Argentine peso, I mean, get their money out of c- currencies that are more volatile and more vulnerable to to shock and adjustment, and so in, in doing so, you know, basically uh, exacerbates the underlying problem of economic inequality. Uh, and it's a little coincidence that this tends to happen under you know right wing presidents and prime ministers who are obviously serving class interests.
0: Yeah, I recall like during the late 80s uh, debt crisis um there was research showing that uh, it was quite possible that more flight capital had escaped the debtor countries uh than the debtor countries owed so that in fact they were actually net creditors if you looked at it consolidated the accounts um but you know the the governments owed the money and the private people ran off with it all um and I guess you know we're we're living through that again
1: I think that you know a lot of this stuff uh, can feel really complex. It can feel uh, even if kind of there's some some feeling of moral and political clarity. Uh, it does often feel uh, that you need to have uh, you know a graduate degree in economics to make sense of this. But I think that there are uh, other examples where the uh, distributional and moral questions around the fund and its mandate come into really clear focus, which is on the question of IMF's uh, surcharges. So this is on top of the principle, on top of the interest, the IMF um, has these surcharges that it levies against its most heavily indebted borrowers. Uh, and you might imagine that in the context of such severe strain, uh, not only of the pandemic, certainly of the pandemic and this recession, global recession that attended to it, but also with a country like Ukraine that's literally facing off against an invading army, that the IMF would seek to you know, reduce these Uh, surcharges, if not eliminate these surcharges. But what we're seeing is, to your question, Doug, is the IMF the bad guy or the good guy now? We're seeing the exact opposite. So surcharge fees have doubled from $1 billion to $2 billion just between 2019 and 2021. The number of countries in those two periods that face these surcharges rose from 9 to 16, so nearly doubled. By 2025, the IMF expects the number to rise to 38. So that's you know, more than uh, quadrupling in just six years in terms of the IMF escalating these surcharges. So in a case like Ukraine, like I said, where you know, Zelensky's government's trying its best to provide for over 7 million displaced people, the fund will have extracted over $400 million worth of surcharges in just these last two years, which is more than 25% of the country's you know, entire healthcare budget that was expended in the course of the pandemic. So these are, you know, pro-cyclical, highly punitive, really unnecessary fees that are being extracted by the IMF, uh, and no one really knows why. This is not to say, Doug, that you know, the IMF doesn't have a key role to play. And the, the obvious direction in which this conversation goes is, you know, should the IMF be abolished? It's a really interesting question. I personally think that the role of the IMF can play with respect to what's called special drawing rights. So you know, the, the provision of debt-free money to many of these countries, which we saw a huge injection of these special drawing rights that provided a really important buffer uh, for many of these countries in the course of this pandemic. I think that there is a role to play. What's remarkable is the resistance of the funds management. To these particular criticisms and the clear uh, evidence from laymen like me to uh, really high level international experts about what's there. And, you know, Doug, I would be very curious to hear more about you know, your experience at these spring meetings because, from what I see in, in my own experience uh, engaging with the IMF, they create a really nice and convenient bifurcation between so-called civil society organizations that are responsible for reflecting needs and priorities of real people and communities. And then the actual hard work of the fund's you know, governance and, and its lending practices, which are, of course, are kind of protected and immune from popular discontent that may be bubbling up either on the streets of cities like Quito or Buenos Aires and you know, the fund's headquarters in D.C.,
0: yeah, it was very much uh, a tale of two cities. <laughs> You'd, uh, if you were just regular reporter like me for The Nation or something, um, you, know, you were really outside uh, the inner sanctum. If you're uh, a banker, you have got to go to the nice parties and talk to all the, the, the bigwigs. And uh, you know, it was very clear where the power lies. You know, they put on a good show. Um, they wanted to make you feel all listened to. Uh, and they wanted to look open and democratic. But in fact, they're anything but. But which brings me to the, the, the structure of the governance of the organization. I mean, it's nominally a multilateral organization. They talk this language of solidarity. But in fact, it's controlled by a handful of rich countries, with one in particular, this one, having a especially heavy role. Um, it's not by any means uh, anything like as democratic, even as the, uh, the UN General Assembly.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's always worth mentioning in conversations like this, just in case there may be even one listener who doesn't know about the gentleman's agreement that governs the remaining Bretton Woods institutions, namely the World Bank and the IMF that since their foundation, the gentleman's agreement is a European will run the International Monetary Fund and the U.S. American will be the president of the World Bank. And of course, both institutions will be headquartered in Washington, D.C. So you know, even the kind of open secrets and the optics of the organizations do reflect that underlying governance structure um, and the intense resistance of the United States. To any real deep governance reform, democratization of the fund reflects the geopolitical relevance of the IMF. And I think, you know, just by way of conclusion, I think we should, um, obviously, there's a huge amount of, popular protest and uprising happening everywhere from Karachi, Pakistan, to Kenya, to the streets of Argentina we've seen kind of explode with discontent with the IMF and and its agreement. But I think that we should expect these very same dynamics to intensify. I don't think that we should be expecting these institutions to be moving in a more democratic direction, because I do think that the geopolitical tensions that uh, kind of are intensifying in the present moment as we move towards more great power competition, more of a multipolar world. Uh, as we enter what we might consider to be a second Cold War, I think the weaponization Uh, of the IMF, both for good and for bad. I mean, it's very possible that the U.S., while maintaining that control, will want to have a friendlier face in terms of development and financing to other parts of the world. But in terms of actually maintaining a grip and a control over the institutions, over that infrastructure of of international finance, I think it's unlikely that we're going to move in a more multilateral direction given security interests and a defensive crouch in which uh, the U.S. blob, our, our state, our security apparatus now finds itself.
0: I hadn't been paying close attention to the Bretton Woods institutions as I used to, but I just learned uh, that uh, the IMF is starting a resilience and sustainability trust, which is supposed to provide longer term finance, up to 20 years. Uh, which the U.S. has not yet committed to, but it's meant to deal with the climate crisis and associated issues. Uh, now the IMF used to have a very short-term bias, you know, short-term balance of payments problems. The idea was it help a country over a rough patch. Now, of course, those rough patches were always very structural and <laughs> likely to recur, but anyway, in any case, that was the rhetoric. It was a short-term institution. Now they're moving into 20-year finance. Any lending out of this facility will have to come from, uh, along with reforms, the usual um, austerity, um, conditionality. But... Um, Makes me wonder, what is left to reform? It's not like the 80s when there are subsidies and tariffs to dismantle, import substitution, something resembling a welfare state. All that's been dismantled. I mean, what, what is left to reform from the IMS point of view?
1: Doug, how naive. There's always some industry to be liberalized. There's always uh, you know a higher score on the, on the World Bank's doing business index. Uh, there's always more uh, of a, a longer, thicker, brighter red carpet that can be rolled out for international finance. I think as demonstrated by the tenure of Jim Kim, a former physician and humanitarian who took over the World Bank with a promise to kind of reform it in a more humanitarian direction ended up introducing this billions to trillions program uh, trying to create a kind of cascading uh, international finance through de-risking asset classes. So, you know, if you can't anymore destroy an ISI or import substitution regime, what you can do is make mountains into assets. You can take railroads and make them into you know, investment opportunities um, there's always more of the country to sell. And uh, I think it's a big piece here. Also, you know, there's going to be, you know, I, I live in Latin America. Uh, I live in a country, I live in Mexico, where the government has just uh, renationalized uh, lithium, uh, where it's moving to renationalize its, its electricity grid in general. So I think that you're right that successive decades. Of liberalisation have kind of desiccated the state and and made uh, and, and, and investors are effectively you know, feeding on the bones uh, of uh, what's left of these uh, you know post-socialist experiments you might say but um, I think we're seeing a rising movement in many parts of the South in Latin America in particular towards more energy sovereignty towards more of a public and national control uh, over these industries and that sets up a really intense clash with these creditors. Because again, it's unlikely in the context of the high volatility in the global economy that many of those, southern, even those southern economies will be able to stay away from international creditors uh, given the, the struggle they're just going to have with, with you know balance of payments and, and uh, staying away from s- severe recessions in the context of renewed pandemics and uh, supply chain seizures, et cetera.
0: And finally, and I guess this may be a fatally large question to have as the last question, but how does China figure into the IMF?
1: I would defer to experts on this uh, in terms of you know, the, the, the relationship between China's uh, foreign lending and, and the IMF. But it, it, there's no doubt that, in, you know, in terms of volume, China is, you know, has surpassed the IMF in many parts of the world as the go-to lender for, or not just the IMF. IMF does kind of crisis financing, but in the World Bank as well for you know, development financing, and infrastructure development. What I hear from my friends who, you know, work in governments and across the region, uh, even talking to the Cubans, for example, uh, who have not really gotten into bed with the Chinese, they just say, "Look, <laughs> these the conditions are not like that favorable." You know, they're not. Uh, I think much is made in a, such a hypocritical and kind of uh, dizzying fashion about you know China's debt traps. And, and I think it's really important to resist that and look at the data and compare the experiences of indebtedness of these developing countries without leaping to the idea that you know, China's vultures flying over parts of the global South. Uh, it's really important to kind of revisit that and, and dive into the propaganda. But I think that this is kind of what I was meant about you know, in, intensified Cold War great power competition there's going to be <laughs> these kind of proxy lending conflicts. We may well see kind of almost like exclusivity contracts with these governments about, you know, okay, we'll lend you this money, but as long as you don't, you know, take any money from the Chinese and, and trying to kind of guard interdependence in one direction, mainly toward the United States and its allies in Europe, oh, and away from East uh, with the Chinese. So, China is a very active lender uh, on the global stage in the global south. This is not, you know, for free. But I think that countries are looking at these different models and, and really, really seriously thinking about, you know, in which direction to pivot or if to accept financing from both directions. And I think it's that kind of call for non-alignment to say, you know, we're a poor country. We want to accept development financing. We'll work with whoever will give it to us. If that's World Bank, it's World Bank. If it's Chinese, it's Chinese, and we'll make our decision based on those conditions. That's going to be the position I think of a lot of these global south countries, in particular those led by progressive governments to say, you know, don't try to claim us for your side of this Cold War. We are just trying to improve the material conditions of our people. uh, And, uh, you know, we don't want to fall into your trap of uh, thinking about the world in terms of the free nations and the slave nations.
0: Well, from their point of view, it might be good to have some competition between the, uh, the imperial creditors. Indeed, and we could
1: have another show, Doug, where we talked about you know, the, the, the long, long first Cold War and, and, and what that com- competition meant for countries in the South in terms of kind of being able to play them against each other and, and whether the, the promise of playing those countries, those powers against each other, outweighed the perils uh, and risks of uh, being a, a proxy terrain for their violent conflict. But certainly, I think uh, it's a helpful history to contextualize uh, the, the present poly and the, the escalating geopolitical pressure that is being applied to countries of the global south, um, from Africa to Asia to, to Latin America.
0: One of the advantages of doing a political economy show these days is there's just plenty of material to cover. That was the political economist David Adler, general coordinator of the Progressive International. David mentioned a Cornwall Consensus That's the name for a memo that circulated around the G7 conference last June, held in Cornwall, which would commit the seven member countries, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the U.S., and U.K., to an ambitious agenda of greater equity and solidarity in building forward better for the pandemic. It would replace the Washington Consensus, the neoliberal orthodoxy that reigned for the previous 30 or 40 years, as a governing model for the global economy. Pretty words, but one has doubts. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. of Morgan Spaziergang, Morning Walk, by Kraftwerk, a live version from 1974, I think. Today's music bears no relation to interview content. Next, Asian Americans. In the 2020 census, just under 20 million respondents self-identified as Asian, or about 6% of the population. It's not a large group compared to the black population, 12%, or Hispanic Latino, 19%, but it is growing. It's also highly diverse, including impoverished dishwashers of Filipino origin and hedge funders of Indian origin. Is it fair to use a single label to describe them? How do they identify? What is the history behind the wave of anti-Asian violence we've seen in the last couple of years? And what about political organization? Here to answer these questions is Sudeep Bhattacharya. Sudeep is a PhD candidate in political science at Rutgers a former newspaper reporter and a writer whose work has appeared in current affairs Protean magazine Reappropriate, a website that covers Asian American feminism, politics, and pop culture. He has a long piece in the fraught topic of the role of intellectuals on the left just posted to the Brooklyn Rail website. He's also co-chair of the Political Education Committee of the Central Jersey DSA. During the interview, we discussed Vincent Chen, a Chinese-American man who was beaten to death in 1982 in Highland Park, Michigan, by a laid-off auto worker and his stepfather, a Chrysler plant supervisor. They'd assumed Chen was Japanese and therefore responsible for the job losses they'd suffered because of competition from Mitsubishi et al. They got three years probation and were fined $3,000 for the murder. Okay, here's Sudeep Bhattacharya. There are a whole lot of cliched images of Asian-Americans, but maybe the most popular is that they're nerds employed in tech who are really good at math. What is the reality of the population?
2: The reality is there are some folks who certainly work in STEM, but yeah, Asian-Americans, you have a ton of Asian-Americans who work in the garment industry. You have tons of Asian-Americans who literally clean the offices of other Asian-Americans who work in STEM, right? You have Asian-Americans who do a lot of menial, other menial work. I know people have family members who, for instance, work jobs at liquor stores or work jobs just as cashiers in South Asian-owned supermarkets, things like that. There's a report I usually use in my writing. It's kind of old, but you know, it is what it is. It's 2016. I think Center for American Progress published it. And in that report, they cited how compared to every other racial and ethnic uh, group in the U.S., Asian-Americans have the largest income disparity within the group. So again, yeah, there's certainly Asian Americans who do work as so-called, you know, white collar professional class, but there are a ton of Asian Americans because globally, and this is important because, you know, Asians are still migrating to the United States. Globally, Asians are still, for the most part, working class or laborers. So that's happening. That's obviously also seen in the United States. Again, like I said, there's plenty of Asian Americans who clean offices, work odd jobs, or are just trying to stitch together some things so they can keep up with cost of living. That's also affecting a lot of us. And it's also a lot of us live metropolitan areas.
0: Given the diversity of the population, you just described the, the great economic diversity, the, the big gap between rich and poor, or the occupational diversity, but also ethnic and national. We've got East Asians, South Asians, Filipinos. Is it really right to use a single label? Do Asian-Americans see themselves as Asian-American first or Filipino or, or what?
2: It is a complicated question, frankly. Um, I do want to highlight a really amazing place to go and also dig into this research. Uh, it's called API Data. It's spearheaded by um, some political scientists that I really look up to, Kartik Ramakrishnan and Janelle Wong. So they've been the ones who've really been collecting a lot of this uh, survey research from Asian Americans. Um, I believe one of their major publications where they put all this data together was also in 2016. And there you can find the research not necessarily showing that all Asians agree that they're Asians first. So it is complicated. So I think even Pew researched a study on this, and they showed that six out of 10 people they interviewed, or sorry, they surveyed, uh, whose family or their background initially or ancestries from Asia usually viewed themselves first as where their parents are from nationally. So like for me, for example, I am... My parents come from India. My grandfather came here in the 60s, actually, from India. So I guess someone like me would say, I'm Indian American, ahead of Asian. But in that research, especially with AAPI data, which I think does a far better job in Pew Research, it isn't like an either-or situation. You can still find Indian Americans like me saying, I'm Indian American, but also cognizant of the fact that we're Asian American too. So I think there's tension there, but sometimes there's a tendency to overblow it, I feel like. Because regardless, there's still these very um, similar kind of experiences that certain Asians have with the recent anti-Asian hate crimes that are happening. If you're perceived to be East Asian, even if you're Southeast Asian, it doesn't matter if you believe in the Asian American label or not, you're going to be treated as such and attacked, right? For a lot of us, like I grew up under the shadow of 9-11. Yeah, it didn't really matter (laughs) to certain people that say, I'm Hindu, or, or Indian or whatever, they just saw me as, well, in that case, they saw me as Arab, which was read as Muslim, which was read as a threat. So sometimes there is that, yeah, internal tension that many of us have about this identity. But I do think it's still a useful label because you find a lot of nuance there in terms of how people see us. And also, again, you, and this is also anecdotally, my own parents, again, they consider themselves Asian, they consider them, themselves Indian American, Bengali, Hindu and Asian. So you can also have instances where people believe in multiple identities at the same time. And also just to add another thing um, about the experience factor. So again, to understand Asian Americans, you still have to understand class, neoliberalism, patriarchy, right? We're not unique from these factors. So since the last 50 years, right, the social mobility has kind of become almost impossible. This is why you also see a lot more Asian Americans really stuck where they are economically. And so you will also notice, and this is something that Professor Wong, I interviewed them for another article, and they talked to me about this. Even if individual groups don't think of themselves as Asians only, they are still arriving at similar conclusions politically as Asians. So you'll even find Vietnamese Americans who are typically more conservative on many things also thinking uh, universal health care is something that's important, or also worried about Again, hate crimes, et cetera, et cetera. So I still think there's value in the label, right? But I, yeah, I certainly see there's internal tensions to it too.
0: You've been just mentioning the hate crimes, um, which have been very salient in the last couple of years. Uh, Trump really contributed to it by blaming China for um COVID. Uh, but, you know, we've seen these things over the years. You mentioned 9 11 too. A lot of South Asians were seen as Arab and therefore beaten up in the early, late 70s, early 80s when Japanese uh, competition in manufacturing was very strong. You know, there was a Chinese guy who was killed in Detroit because they thought he was Japanese. Um, you know, so we've had this long history coming in and going in waves. Um, but could you talk about this, the historical background of this anti-Asian violence and then you know, maybe uh, then talk about what characterizes the current wave, what makes it similar or different uh, from its predecessors?
2: It's a uh, sad reality that anti-Asian violence is not, it's familiar to many of us. It started the moment that uh, Chinese uh, immigrants arrived here to the United States shortly before the U.S. Civil War started. You had um, a lot of, again, a lot of Chinese laborers mostly who were fleeing China. China was not colonized in the same way as India and other Asian nations, but it certainly was negatively inf- impacted by European colonization or certain forces by the Europeans I mean literally the British got uh, Chinese folks hooked on opium so it can uh, force them to trade with them normal stuff like that that the Europeans have done so a lot of people were fleeing but uh, a lot of them went to the to the west coast to look for gold to follow that dream that they had to at least get some sort of financial security and soon after that you can see and this is also from the historical work done by Erica Lee and others who show that very quickly after that, there was a lot of mostly white laborers demonstrating against um, the Chinese. You also had business owners realizing this sort of um, anti-Chinese fervor was kind of creating a lot of quote-unquote discontent. And so that led into uh, the Chinese um, anti-Chinese uh, immigration acts in the, I think in the 1870s, 1880s. Um, and then you have the gentleman's agreements, right? That was done between the Japanese empire and the United States. And then shortly after that, most Uh, Asian immigration was curtailed heavily. Um, Only if you had the money or you were seen as a professional class person could you come into the United States. And that only changed in the 60s. It is something that is both like amazing to think about, that there was this long period of time in which Asian Americans and Asian people were targeted and focused in this way. So it, it is familiar in that sense. And I think the issue with Asian Americans and Asian people in the United States has been we have been seen by certain forces in this country as the quote-unquote internal enemy. And this is what's familiar today. You mentioned Trump talking about, quote-unquote, the Chinese virus. And then, of course, um, him sort of leading a really uh, tough campaign on, on China, on treating China as this existential threat versus, I guess, every other competitor before us. And a little bit of this happened also in the 80s with Japan, right? To your point about the young man who was murdered, I think, in Detroit, his name was Vincent Chin. He was murdered by two white men who called him basically a slur for someone who's Japanese and they blamed him for stealing their jobs. And he got into a fight with them. He was very like trying to defend himself and he wasn't taking any from them. And they just, you know, they overpowered him and killed him. But that's the familiar thing that's happening now. We are sort of seeing East Asian Americans being this kind of vassal for these broader uh, economic financial battles and world power battles. I think that's the familiar trope. But what's slightly different, I, can, I, I think, is I think there's more attention finally being paid to what's happening with Asian-Americans, actually, than in years past. I think that's a little bit different. And certainly, I also feel like in terms of the vitriol towards Asians right now, I do think it's connected again to the rise of China, to how it's being portrayed, even by the Biden administration. They're obviously.
0: Yeah, liberals are really playing along with this stuff. I yeah. know, I've seen like Robert Kuttner in the prospect uh...
2: It really flirts with pretty
0: anti-Chinese racism, and it's it's very distressing when I read that sort of thing. It's not just, you know, right-wing yahoos who are are spreading this stuff. Uh, Now, where does this come from? You you mentioned a couple of instances where workers themselves instigated the uh, Mm anti-Chinese violence, uh, anti-Asian violence uh, in general. Is it the capitalist class manipulating the feelings of Mm -hmm. the working class uh, to divide and conquer, or is it uh, bubble up from the grassroots?
2: Both. I know the answer. It's just both. When we talk about racism and white supremacy in the United States, uh, we need to talk about, like, there's a, there's a term in political science called path dependency, where certain things take shape and become very familiar uh, in people's lives, whether or not it really benefits them. Because, you know, ultimately, for a lot of white workers, white supremacy really doesn't work for them. Having a society in which you're allying with your bosses will really still screw you up at the end of it, Right. But that idea of white supremacy, the idea of what is seen as labor for some people is white people being screwed by these so-called foreigners and foreign governments. That certainly is now part of some of the, like what you mentioned, bubbling up from below. But then there's obviously um, elites, right? Elites who want us to confront China in this way. Steve Bannon, for example, was obsessed with convincing Trump and other people that our main enemy was China. Like he was very much saying, oh, we should work with Russia even, but China is the main person or the main entity. And same thing with Biden. Certainly there's a little bit of that. Like, I really do believe that, you know, some liberals are now being led to believe that China is this existential threat, is this like number one world enemy because of that elite factor of people they trust telling them as such. So it's a little bit of both, frankly, because I don't think it's someone wakes up and has no idea about how they might feel about Asian-Americans um, until someone just tells them that, I'm sure when you read the news constantly and you think about these things as a person who's non-Asian, even as a working class person, you might carry with you certain kind of tropes, stereotypes, resentment. But I also think elites, like even Biden, I don't think he's, he wants that to happen, but certainly he's contributed to that, or at least the liberals, and some liberals have done that too, where, yeah, we're seeing China being portrayed as this next big bad. And that's also very familiar to the 60s and 70s, right? When you had, once again, China being a country that certainly wanted to have more relations with, but at the same time, a lot of liberal and conservative commentators feared because of Mao's China. And same thing with Vietnam, the Viet Minh being so successful in their you know, fight against the United States, they were being portrayed as this like, quote unquote, Asiatic horde. So there's a little bit of both, the bubble up and
0: the top down approach. I'm speaking with the journalist Sudeep Bhattacharya. Yeah, I mean, with China, I mean, there's there's this real competition between the U.S. and China, economically and politically. In many ways, you know, China is the rising power and the U.S. is the fading power. So that's going to provoke hostilities. But then there's also this long heritage of anti-Chinese racism to draw on to fight that battle. It's really pretty unfortunate uh, confluence of events that's uh, producing this really toxic environment.
2: Like again, like, like Vincent Chen, like I think he was murdered in the 70s, late 70s.
0: I think it was the
2: early 80s. Early 80s, right. Okay. And then you have also instances now where hate crimes are also focused on the elderly women. Like you have instances where women are followed to where they live. You have instances where Asian American women are pushed, shoved, older women being beaten up that, yeah, certainly cannot just be connected to anti-Chinese rhetoric or the whole quote unquote COVID China virus thing. But there is certainly a history of where certain Asians are viewed as scapegoats in certain moments in time. And that seems to always bubble up in these kind of instances.
0: And what about the relation to imperialism? Is this kind of a domestic blowback of imperial adventures?
2: If you look at early immigration, like I said, there would be no reason for Asians to migrate to the United States unless there were Europeans, U.S. interests meddling in Asia, right? Same thing with uh, Indians. Like I think the migration of Indians really picked up in the 80s and 90s, right, and this is, you know, of course the British weren't around anymore. But the conditions in which, like the poverty, the sort of um, imbalance between the capitalist class and the working class, these are these are things that were planted by certain elites, right? And then so you're you're seeing that kind of fruit being born now. But I also think it's interesting to take note. I do want to emphasize too that there's also a lot of fertile ground for Asian Americans to organize against these things.
0: This is my next question. You know, you've, you've written about uh, the possibilities for, for progressive Asian organizing. So what's that look like? Um, what's going on in that, uh, in that dimension?
2: You know, all throughout history, uh, Asians have been organizing, right? Um, when Asians start arriving in the United States, when many of them start to come through Hawaii uh, after it was also colonized, you had a lot of instances of Asians there, Uh, having to work on the plantations there, and then sort of coming together. We're talking about Filipinos, Japanese, Chinese, some Indian. Despite their language differences, some of their religious differences, they were actually organizing together to take back some control from the uh, white establishment. There's also the, the reality that Asians also are somewhat of a colonizing force there because you have the native Hawaiians who've been totally screwed. But there's always been organizing. In the 60s and 70s, you had a lot of left-wing Asian American organizations around. And if you, if anyone is interested in reading more about this, I really recommend the book by Laura Polito, which is called Black, Brown, Yellow, and Left. Asian internationalism was a really big core of the new left, right? The anti-Vietnam protest, the identification with the Viet Minh. And more recently, you have groups that that have existed now to sort of empower Asians where we are. So Asian-Americans, even though we're, I think about, there's a 22 million Asian-Americans living in the United States. It's a very fast growing population, but still not, we're not in the 10% range yet. I think we're only six or 7% of the population, but where we are geographically is very important. We're mostly on the metropolitan areas. We're mostly in the West coast, now in New Jersey, New York, and other sort of important States and also in Georgia. And in these States, you'll find, organizations like CAV, uh, Communities Against Anti-Asian Violence in New York City, Desi's Rising Up and Moving, also in New York City. You'll have also groups on the West Coast that have been doing a lot of um, voter empowerment. Similarly, you'll find that also like in Georgia, which was one of the reasons why the Democrats were able to snatch those two Senate seats recently. So there is that happening now. And also, if you look at the primary battle, uh, most Asians actually in Cali, again, a very significant state, uh, gravitated towards the Bernie Sanders campaign. So I think one of the other stereotypes about us is that we're politically, and this is a stereotype that even other Asians tell about themselves. This is not just about like, you know, non-Asians that were somehow politically disorganized, politically unmotivated or apathetic.
0: Keep to yourselves, family values, that sort of thing, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. And it's, so I just, I just want to be really clear here. I'm also not trying to portray Asian Americans as this amazing progressive bloc. All I'm trying to say is that there is fertile ground for organizing to take place and, and that there are groups like this that do exist already. So, so some of that's already happening, but certainly there's a percentage of Asian-Americans, just like with Hispanics who voted for Trump, I think, growing around 30%. You also have instances of Asian-Americans who may align with an Andrew Yang kind of politics, you know, like a very much like, yeah, you know, entrepreneurism, you know, let's just, you know, uh, small business owners, that kind of thing. That still exists, But there's also a lot of impetus for Asians to come around to more progressive politics. I mean, AOC represents a district that is very South Asian heavy, for example. You know, I remember when she first won her her, uh, primary, she was going around to these South Asian groups uh, in the area, activist groups, and uh, leading Q&A with them. So these are areas in which Asian Americans have sort of exemplified a more progressive attitude that is a little bit more familiar to me as well than what some people might want to argue.
0: And I would imagine that a lot of traditional left organizations overlook that possibility and they shouldn't.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I don't even know how to explain it. I think overlook is the best way of saying because I do think like so in the circles I'm in. And again, I'm in central New Jersey. Yes, it exists. But uh, I mean, I'm in a place that is another maligned
0: identity. right?
2: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'm a central (laughs) Jerseyan. Uh but but to be honest this is an area that is very asian heavy asian american heavy like i grew up as a middle class suburban kid but where i grew up is very south asian heavy east asian heavy and arab heavy so it is something like you need to care about you need to care about these issues right if you want to organize in this area um so i'm just saying that as a caveat if in case someone else from another part is like that doesn't sound familiar to me but to me it is like something we discuss sometimes in our chapter but even then Up until the murder of the uh, six Asian women, I think there was eight or nine victims overall in the Atlanta murder. Uh, Up until then, to be really honest with you, in some left spaces I've been in, it's nothing like malicious. It's like what you said. There's a sort of void or lack of analysis, even among Asian American lefties who don't want to maybe dig deep enough or don't have an interest or frankly, don't even know some of our own history. And I, I say that as somebody who also had to learn our own history as an adult, and I teach a class on Asian American identity now, but I had to also brush up on that history. So I, I do think it's more of like, yeah, more of a void sometimes on the left as well.
0: That was Sudeep Bhattacharya, a writer and PhD candidate in political science at Rutgers. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, another irrelevant musical treat, this from Sebado's Pink Moon. Till next week. Bye.